now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. What's up, list nerds? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow list nerd, Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. From 1934 to 1968, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America implemented the Motion Picture Production Code, which most of you would probably recognize as the Hayes Code, which regulated what was considered morally appropriate to show film audiences. This, of course, impacted whether films featured topless women, the use of vulgar language, and even the depiction of men and women sleeping in the same bed. But the most harmful policy... The most harmful part of this was the ban on depictions of same-sex relationships. Up until the early 1970s, when they began implementing the ratings system that has been refined to what we know today, the LGBTQ community was largely unrepresented in films across America. Some filmmakers, like Rebel Without a Cause director Nicholas Ray, who was rumored to be bisexual, skirted the code by leaving subtle hints about the character's sexual identities, specifically Plato Crawford, but... It wasn't until two very influential films from 1975 came out that the LGBTQ community could finally see themselves represented on the big screen. And both of those movies are going to come up today on somebody's list. Since then, Hollywood has made major improvements in its representation of marginalized groups, but there's still a lot of work to be done. That being said, there are tons of memorable LGBTQ characters who have captured moviegoers' hearts over the years, and I was so happy to talk about my top five LGBTQ characters with Brooke and Jordan, the hosts of the Queer Quadrant podcast. They were truly delightful. I hope you have fun with our lists. I know I did. Now, before we get to our top five, I saw something last week. One of the benefits of joining the Force 5 Patreon feed over at patreon.com backslash force5 is that at some point, I'm going to ask you to send me a list of movies you want me to review, and I'll pick the top one off the stack that I have not seen before. This week, executive producer Carlos was asked to toss me a list of films, and he provided four of them. He sent me The Warriors from 1979, which I have seen. He sent me Logan's Run from 1976, which I have seen. And then he sent me two that I hadn't seen. Lifeboat from 1944, and The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958. So I went to Rasputin and Amoeba downtown here in Berkeley, and I was taking a look at what they had. Neither one of them had Lifeboat, but I was able to find The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad for around 10 bucks. So here we go. The character of Sinbad is a fictional mariner and the hero of a story cycle of Middle Eastern origin. He's described as hailing from Baghdad during the 8th and 9th centuries AD, and in the course of seven voyages throughout the seas east of Africa and south of Asia, he has fantastic adventures in magical realms, encountering monsters and witnessing supernatural phenomena. The stories display the folk and themes present in works of that time. The Abbasid reign was known as a period of great economic and social growth. Arab and Muslim traders would seek new trading routes and people to trade with. This process of growth is reflected in the Sinbad tales. The Sinbad stories take on a variety of different themes and have Sinbad going up against various fantastical creatures like a giant whale he mistakes for an island in the first voyage and giant snakes that are described as able to swallow elephants in the second. The earliest separate publication of the Sinbad tales in English found in the British Library is an adaptation as The Adventures of Huron Banau from around 1770. An early U.S. edition called The Seven Voyages of Sinbad the Sailor and The Story of Aladdin or The Wonderful Lamp were published in Philadelphia in 1794. 
So these stories have been around forever, and obviously stories like this would be easy pickings for adventure films, and over the years there have been dozens of Sinbad films, both live action and animated. The first appearance of Sinbad on screen was the animated short film Sinbad the Sailor from 1935, which saw Sinbad and his parrot taking on a band of nefarious pirates. The first live-action English-language film was Arabian Nights in 1942, but because of the limitations of film then, the monsters that Sinbad normally encountered were not present in the film. Enter Ray Harryhausen. You're probably aware of who Ray Harryhausen is, and if you're not, you've definitely seen his creations somewhere. He was an Academy Award-winning stop-motion animator who worked on films like Mighty Joe Young from 1949 all the way up to Clash of the Titans in 1981, and influenced many of the filmmakers you know and love today, including Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, Tim Burton, George Lucas, and Guillermo del Toro. Told that costume pictures were dead in the mid-50s, he shopped his idea around anyway, calling his brand of stop-motion animation Dynamation, and got Columbia Pictures to finance The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. In the seventh voyage of Sinbad, you will see the two-headed rock of the Arabian Nights Tales, a bird with the wingspread of a jet airliner. You will see it attack a shipload of sailors and carry Sinbad away in its talons. You will see a fight to a finish between a 50-foot cyclops and a 100-foot dragon. You will see an astonishing sword fight between Sinbad and a skeleton which comes to life at the magician's bidding. Every movement in this sequence was carefully plotted in advance, with precise markings for Sinbad and for insertion of the skeleton. Matthews, playing Sinbad, was coached by Italian Olympic fencing coach Enzo Greco in endless rehearsals, during which the fencing master stood in for the skeleton. The film opens with Sinbad sailing from Chandra to his home city of Baghdad to introduce his future wife, the princess of Chandra, in order to secure peace between their lands. They make an unscheduled pit stop at an island named Colossa, where they encounter a giant cyclops and a magician named Sakura who's fleeing the beast while holding a magic lamp. After a short standoff, they flee the island with the help of Sakura and his lamp, but in the commotion, the cyclops snags the lamp and keeps it on the island. Once in Baghdad, the magician asks the king for a ship and a crew to sail back to the island to get the lamp, but is denied, so he pulls a fast one on the royal family and casts a spell on the princess, shrinking her down to about four inches tall. The only way to turn her back to normal, of course, is with potion ingredients that are only found on the island of Colossa, including the eggshell of a rock, a mythical two-headed bird. Adding an extra wrinkle to the journey, no respectable sailors want to head to an island with a dangerous cyclops, so Sinbad gets a gang of prisoners who were set to be hanged to be his crew, a move that jeopardizes the entire trip. As an adaptation, the story has less to do with the Seventh Voyage story, which sees Sinbad hanging out with people who transform into birds and is later sold into slavery, and seems more like a blend of the Third and Fifth Voyages. Longtime Columbia contract actor Kerwin Matthews plays Sinbad, and he was honestly the most boring character in the film. He's a typical wonderbred hero, chivalrous to a fault, not a chink in his armor, like a real golden boy. A far cry from how the tales would sometimes portray Sinbad, as, uh, for example, in the fourth voyage, Sinbad finds himself on this island with a wealthy wife. And he doesn't realize that their custom on this island is that when one of the spouses dies, the other person is dropped into a giant cavern tomb with some water and seven slices of bread until they're also dead. Well, how does Sinbad survive? He waits for other unlucky spouses to drop down after their better halves die and then busts them over the head until they're dead and then steals their rations. Sounds like a real great guy. 
Anyway, Catherine Grant plays Princess Parisia, a largely one-dimensional damsel in distress who gets a few moments to shine while in her shrunken form. She was probably best known for this film and her role in Anatomy of a Murder two years later in 19... Uh, actually, a year later, 1959, as well as being Bing Crosby's wife. Rounding out the main cast is Torrin Thatcher, a British actor who made a career out of playing scene-stealing villains in this role was no different. He was absolutely the best actor in the film and definitely the most interesting character. The real spectacle, of course, here is the dynamation. Nathan Duran, who was an art director turned director, directed most of the live action sequences with no creatures, while Harryhausen is said to have directed the sequences with the creatures, which makes sense because he would be the one doing the post-production on the claymation animation later on. It's truly a wonder how they did what they did here in 1958, which emanates a clear aura of genuine movie magic. It was so much fun trying to figure out the intricacies of having men throw a spear at a giant cyclops, dodge the flames from a dragon's mouth, and Sinbad having a full-blown sword fight with a walking skeleton. Even the scenes where he interacts with his miniature muse were impressive, more so when you realize that they actually built a gigantic 40-foot-tall pillow for her to stand in front of to deliver dialogue on a soundstage, which was then superimposed on top of the other image. And I, I, I gotta say, I got an abnormal amount of joy in watching Princess Parisia slide down into the magic lamp to meet the genie as if it were a slide at a park, complete with wee as she begins her descent. Much to Columbia's surprise, the film was a sleeper hit. It was released the week of Christmas in 1958 to cash in on the holiday, but ended up making over $3 million on a $650,000 budget, which equates now to around $32 million. Critics also dug the film, noting its special effects and nostalgic feeling. Ray Harryhausen made two more Sinbad films for Columbia Pictures, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad in 1973 with John Philip Law as Sinbad, and Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger in 1977 with Patrick Wayne portraying the sailor. And producer Edward Small liked the financial return so much that he brought Kerwin Matthews and Torrin Thatcher back together for a different stop-motion adventure picture titled Jack the Giant Slayer just a few years later in 1962. There are probably a lot of people who have seen this and love the nostalgic feel of this film. They probably have memories of watching this on Turner Classic Movies with their dad or grandpa on a Sunday afternoon. Now, I never had these memories, but watching it with fresh eyes honestly made me yearn for that creative, practical effect in a current film landscape of constant digital effects. In most cases, our brains are smart enough to tell us that both are fake, but there's something that's more impressive about things done practically. The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad has something for everybody. It's got tender romance, swashbuckling sword fights, creative creatures, treasure hunting, and an upbeat adventurous score from frequent Hitchcock collaborator Bernard Herrmann. If you're looking for a spirited, straightforward adventure film, this punches that ticket. Now, where can you watch it? Well, the good news is, is it's available on Tubi to watch for free. I had to pick it up on Blu-ray, which is why I snagged it over at Rasputin. It's actually got a pretty decent slate of extras here, which Sony is, I guess, normally pretty good with, including a Ray Harryhausen interview where he talks about convincing somebody to make the movie, the intricacies of filming in Spain, the casting decisions, and of course, the process of creating and animating the creatures. There's also a commentary track with Harryhausen and some other folks, a retrospective on Harryhausen's work as told through interviews, and a feature on the score that's like 26 minutes long. All told, there's over an hour of extras not counting the commentary. And good news if you're in the UK, Indicator put out a superior disc that retains all of these extras and adds even more, including a music promo, a birthday tribute to Ray Harryhausen, Super 8 versions of the film, and a new featurette titled The Secrets of Sinbad. 
If you're looking for interesting creatures and uh, just like a wonder of movie making magic, this one would fit the bill. I really do recommend The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. It's just a really fun type of adventure film that you don't see very often anymore. So Carlos, thank you for the recommendation. I hope this review did you justice. Now assigning me movies is not the only benefit of becoming a Patreon listener. You get exclusive shows. I've got exclusive solo top five shows, exclusive draft shows, extra reviews, the Vinegar Syndrome Corner, and more. In January, we had the bonus show for five films you never knew had made for TV sequels, a review for A Wounded Fawn from 2022, Burning Paradise was the Vinegar Syndrome Corner pick, and the Brad Pitt draft with the guys from the Get Me Another podcast is dropping very, very soon. So so please join in the fun over at patreon.com backslash force five. Speaking of fun, let's get to today's sponsor, Hazard County's hottest barbecue joint, The Boar's Nest. Feeling hungry? Boss Hogs got just what you need. An all-you-can-eat special for just $10.99, that's right, all of the hickory smoked barbecue you can eat brisket, grilled chicken, baby back ribs that have been smoked for six hours. The Boar's Nest has more meat than Dirk Diggler. And just like Dirk, it's all you can eat. And if it's ambiance you crave, well, the Boar's Nest has that too. There's a popcorn machine, a jukebox, a pinball machine, a pool table, and a pay telephone. And if the baked beans didn't give you enough gas while you were inside, there are two Hago Co. gas pumps outside to get you home in a jiff. Head to the Boar's Nest at the crossroads of Shiloh and Hazard Counties in Georgia today. All right, pour yourself a glass of moonshine and settle in, because it's time to talk top five LGBTQ characters. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast tonight. I've got both hosts of the Queer Quadrant podcast with me. First up, we've got Brooke Solomon. In addition to talking about films, she's a screenwriter. She's an actor. Brooke, how are you tonight? I am very good. How are you doing? Also, I haven't been identified as an actor in a hot minute. Um, (laughs) Feels like another life, but certainly one that I don't want to leave in the shadows. Well, I am good. Thank you for asking. I have also got her Queer Quadrant co-host with us, filmmaker Jordan Gustafson. How are you, Jordan? I am well. I'm disappointed I did not get identified as an actor, even though I've never acted in my life. So, you know. (laughs) There's always time. (laughs) Well, you're a filmmaker. That's true. That's true. One day, one day, you know, we'll get in front of the camera. We'll ruin lives. Or save them. Okay. Yes. If you ever need somebody to play the voice of a podcaster, I got you guys covered. I don't know if you know any other podcasters, so. You have a phenomenal podcast voice. Yes, and <laughs> shockingly, you're the only podcaster we've ever met or interacted mm-hmm. with. Crazy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, consider yeah, the role you There's yours. not many of us. <laughs> yeah, I'm told it's like an untapped market, this podcasting thing. Oh, yeah. Get in early. You'll be fine. Now, I've gotten into the habit recently of trying not to steal my podcasting guest thunder because I'd like describe their podcast and then say, all right, tell us more about your show. And then they would just kind of stare at me blankly. So I'm going to leave this part up to you. Tell us about The Queer Quadrant. What is it all about and why should people listen after they listen to us here? The Queer Quadrant is a show where we, two bisexual filmmakers, examine cinema in all its cultural context. This is the beginning blurb of our show. And explore why your favorite (laughs) four-quadrant blockbuster is maybe not as straight 
as you think it is. But, you know, in a nutshell, we are really interested to kind of look at the intersection between four quadrant films and the LGBTQ plus representation that they have or don't have. Um, And we really are interested in kind of like how box office numbers and, you know, actual quote unquote marketability and sellability of film um, measures up against having queer representation on screen. Um, the movies don't have to be hits. They'll, we talk plenty of flops, but they do need to have been designed for a large audience. So if you're interested in anything from Top Gun to the girl with the dragon tattoo to Professor Martian and the Wonder Women, which was a big flop, but a movie that we like very dearly. Um, uh, Those are the types of movies that we talk about usually with a guest uh, and a lot of fun. Well said. You nailed it. Uh, Thank you. I got into your show because of the Fast and Furious series. Wow. Yes. Uh, I think Patrick Willems was on Fast Five. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, he. Uh, I think I saw something from him about it and checked it out and was hooked since then. Brooke, your your first time watching all the Fast movies, like how jealous I was to go back and do that again. <laughs> Are you excited for Fast X? I am. From like, I feel like my life was changed in the course of a whole summer. I could never have predicted <laughs> how those movies spiraled either into or out of control, depending on who you're asking. But it really definitely felt like a special experience and a big chunk of uh, blockbuster culture that I had been missing out on. So yes, I am. I won't say I'm as jazzed as Jordan for Fast X because I don't know if that's physically possible, but I'm really excited. Look, if you hit the NOS, you could get as excited as I am. You know, I, will, I think I will I do, be there. I will do my best. Jordan, when you're watching it, are you going to sneak Coronas into the theater? Oh, 100%. I think, you know, Brooke and I will for sure see it together. I'm telling Brooke this now. Um, oh, yeah. Don't worry. I, I got we'll, you. We'll have to have some Coronas, maybe a Corona Rita, uh, any sort of Corona product I think we'll have before. And like a, a nice large barbecue, I feel like is the only way to experience it, you know? You gotta. A Corona Rita sounds pretty amazing. Um, Jason, right? you are invited in spirit because I'm sure that if you <laughs> listen to all of our <laughs> Fast and Furious episodes, <laughs> you're going to want to tune in for Fast X as well. Yeah. I will be there with my Corona Rita. Amazing. <laughs> um, question for, and, and either one of you can answer, but what's the most surprising observation that you've made watching the films that you have so far for the podcast? I, I mean, I don't know about you, Brooke, but I feel like my, like, own personal, like, feeling, like, not feelings, but, like, experience within the queer community, I feel like, has been broadened, and, like, I feel like I personally, like, through the podcast, have made, like, my own discoveries and, like, emotional journey, so I feel like, wow, it's, like, the movies, I think it's, you know, obviously going in, it's about, like, unearthing and rewatching something and recontextualizing stuff and, you know analyzing through a different lens which i think you when you're queer inherently are doing but like when you obviously purposely do it it's different um so i think there's like a two-pronged thing where it's like you have the personal growth and journey that you have within it and then you're like the you know your cinematic understanding of films on the other hand i think that's a really great way to put it i completely agree and something that something for for me that i 
did not expect the podcast to have an influence on was one my writing and that like I write mm. queer characters much more intentionally now and I do actually feel guilty if I start to put together a project that doesn't have queer representation I'm like I talk about this yeah. every week like <laughs> how can I not do it but also I uh, Jordan and I both work in the the development nine to five side of the industry um and it's really kind of like the kind of stuff that we talk about on the podcast has really helped me be an advocate in my literal job that I get paid mm -hmm. for when it comes to queer representation. Again, just because like we're, you know, unpacking these movies on a weekly basis, you really quickly kind of like lean into the shorthand about looking for clues and signs and what does this representation mean and like when is it towing the line and it feels like pandering so it's actually like definitely helped me um you know just be more thoughtful about trying to get more of that representation like actually out to the masses in the way that we want to talk about completely agree yeah and if you look back through time it's it's been a transformation. I mean, there was a time when you'd never see LGBTQ characters in films. And yeah. then it changed to a point where those characters were either used as a punchline. You'd also see those characters just as kind of a backdrop for for things like cruising, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it seems like we're like, it doesn't seem more like, like we're at the point where we should be as a society, but if it definitely feels if you watch movies from, you know, the 70s and 80s until now, it feels like we're certainly on the right track. Oh, definitely. I mean, even with putting together these lists that um, we will be discussing and looking at kind of like our favorite queer characters in film versus in TV, it's crazy how mm. much representation has exploded in the last like yeah. decade or so. Um, that's why I think that like, on our show, The Queer Quadrant, we were interested in talking about like specifically four quadrant film because it feels like there's still a lot of monetary or otherwise barriers that TV has just like completely blown through. Um, and looking at kind of like the parallel tracks of representation in film and TV is um, super interesting. Uh, a little depressing every now and then, but. I was gonna say, I think it's it's interesting and also deeply depressing because TV is so much further ahead than like large studio filmmaking sure uh mm -hmm. on like the movie side of things so it's like you know we we're constantly getting like the first queer character or like it's like a major step when there's like one like gay rom-com but like tv has been obviously like having that for a while and obviously it's not to say like there aren't gay movies i just think on the studio side of things it's much more rare uh than on the independent sphere obviously yeah, I mean, you could see that when you had that character in Lightyear for like five <laughs> seconds and then right. people had a fucking heart attack. Everyone's yes. so stressed out about it. Yeah, you're right. I And I was going to ask this, too, because when we came up with the topic, we didn't mention like in film. It was just top five LGBTQ characters. So oh, both of you just went film, correct? Yeah, yes. we did. <laughs> OK, yeah, I just went film, too. Oh, OK. Uh, wow. Hey, and... look at that. We were all on the same page. <laughs> OK. Yeah, I was talking to my wife about it and uh, and I could do a completely I could probably do two other lists on just TV characters. Oh, no. I question. mean, even on this film list, I texted Brooke before I have. So I had my long list, which had, I don't, even, I don't even know how many names. I don't want to say it on mic. It's embarrassing. But then like my short list went to 18. And so Ooh. that's where I'm currently at right now. So like, wait, you're in, still at 18? Like uh, right now? <laughs> I have them a little ranked. 
but we're 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 freewheeling it, baby. We're just um, we're just going for it. Well, I have I have kind of I have it doesn't matter if we have the same pick so I guess I don't need any backups but like getting from <laughs> six to five was like really torturous I will just say I had uh I had a couple of honorable mentions on mine but the, okay. getting to a, a five was it was tough it was tough narrowing it down it is tough to make the five obviously we have a lot to talk about here Brooke and Jordan are you ready to get into this list I am ready you know what's gonna happen you know what's happening here right now I'll go ahead and kick us off here to kind of set the tone with my number five. Uh, again, really, really tough to rank these. Honestly, two through five could be anywhere on this list, but we're going to start off with one from one of the funniest movies of the last, I don't know, five or six years here for me. Um, the movie is Booksmart from 2019, and the character is Amy, played by Caitlin Dever. It's a little bit shocking that, that you're into Ryan. First crush, the little white cat from the Aristocats. You go from that to Avril Lavigne. It's just, it's not, it's not what I anticipated. So it just seems like she'd be a really fun person to have sleepovers and lie around with. Excuse me? Pardon me? I'm a fun person to have sleepovers and lie around with. It's literally all we do. Well, with her, there'd be more vagina involved. That's fair. I just like that she's always in a good mood and she's got a really cute smile. Amy, do you know how many girls are going to be up your vagina at Columbia next year? Are you aware of it? Because I'm aware of it. Every time I come to visit you, you're just going to be scissoring a different girl. Dude, scissoring is not a thing. Don't knock it until it's you not tried a thing. it. Don't knock it. Until you tried I'm it. I'm not knocking it. But How about you don't knock it until you tried it? Great pick. How do you guys feel about Booksmart? I feel like we are both defenders, yes. Oh, yeah. We we love Booksmart. We talked about it on the pod. We think it's uh, a great, very, like, positive, fun movie. And I love Amy. She is yes. me. I am her. I mean, she's probably mm-hmm. more Jordan <laughs> than me. I will America, girl. In right. in the right. in the Vini Feldstein Caitlin Deaver relationship, I am Vini Feldstein and Jordan is Caitlin Deaver. I mean, just uh, in how we flirt and who we are as people it makes sense. I think if, what we we talked about this on Mike, but I feel like her character is so good because she's such a like the movie. They're both such losers and in like the best way. And I feel like we're not lo- we're losers. Who am I we are we're obviously. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I think every generation has a high school teen sex comedy that just becomes a part of that zeitgeist and i feel like this should be the current generation's selection for that very mm. high honor like you said it's about these two girls who well they're, they're graduating high school and they're finally gonna break the rules and party on their last day of class it's really funny it's really sweet it turns a couple of high school tropes on their heads like the students that you would think were dumbasses aren't like they're getting into good colleges too and the character with a crush on somebody is gay, but it's not played for laughs. It's not weird. It's just a crush. It's the crush that you'd see anywhere else. And it's not it's not like something that's extraordinary. And I like that about this film. Mm. The character of Amy, super good friend. She goes to jail for Molly at one point. Yeah, she does. <laughs> She's really innocent. She's super klutzy, super awkward plays the auto harp and listens to Alanis Morissette, but she's so endearing, so funny. And it seemed like such a fun film to make because mm. 
her and uh, and Beanie Feldstein are just like the best together on screen. So much chemistry. I loved it. Uh, so yeah, that's my number five, Amy from Booksmart. It's a great pick. Love that pick. Um, let's go to Brooke for your number five. Smart choice. Smart choice. Damn. Um, okay, my number five pick. I would like to say these are definitely like all queer characters that are very near and dear to my heart, but I tried to split the difference a little bit and go with like, if I can only talk about five queer characters in a public setting, like I want it to feel <laughs> a little significant. So um, those who know me super well might be like, hmm, Brooke, there are some of your favorite movies missing from the list. Honestly, half the time was because <laughs> it was too hard to pick between like the two people in the couple that make up the movie. Can't choose between my my babies. Ooh, I like wonder that. what ones. Um, but anyway, all that to say, my number five pick for queer characters is none other than the iconic Dr. Frank Inferter from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Goddamn. Played by Tim Curry. And what charming underclothes you both have. But here, put these on. They'll make you feel less uh, vulnerable. <laughs> it's not often we receive visitors here. Let alone offer them hospitality. Hospitality? All we wanted to do was to use your telephone, goddammit, a reasonable request which you've chosen to ignore. Don't be ungrateful. Ungrateful? How forceful you are, Brad. Such a perfect specimen of manhood. So dominant. (laughs) You must be awfully proud of him, Janet. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any tattoos, Brad? Great choice. Such a good pick. I'm just going to quickly make a, a little axe here on my list. Oh, okay, so basically what, I, what I'm what i hearing, Jordan, is that we're going to get your list down by process of elimination, so there actually yes. won't be any overlap. <laughs> You're so welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. No, this is such, I like this is such a, a fun pick for you, though. I love this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can uh, succinctly pitch what the Rocky Horror Picture Show is. Uh, The actual movie, if you're not familiar, Where Have You Been Living um, since 1975, but is this sort of very queer, very fun musical remix of Frankenstein. Um, And I think that not only like how the Rocky Horror Picture Show has endured and become this like incredible queer touchstone for people. But like the fact that it's actually one of the most profitable movies ever made, despite being a huge flop upon release, I feel like is like really indicative of kind of Uh, what draws people to love queer cinema and queer characters like to me rocky horror is frankenfurter it is tim curry Mm. it is like how crystallized and like bold that performance was and obviously it's you know it's 1975 but i think that like it really speaks to one tim curry's love for the role and how like unabashedly confident and like unafraid he was to really lean into that and understood the role um so perfectly he's always talked about it with this you know like real 
tenderness and affection and has always said that he's so glad that that movie is is out there and that um like the the midnight screening culture around rocky horror he's called a rite of passage because it's a chance for people to try a few roles on for size and figure out their own sexuality um and i think that like uh dr frankenfurter is one of the most iconic kind of like characters visually um like as a touchstone um and i just think that's really cool for it to be like this fabulous flamboyant um you know alien uh in one of the best costumes to ever grace the screen i mean there's nothing more queer than trying to create like a perfect man you know yeah like what is what is not queer about that (laughs) yeah tim curry like in a in a career that he had with so many iconic characters, this is by far, I think, his most iconic role. Just rocking that corset and the that fishnets. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, loved it. Yeah. I'm actually surprised that this is number five. Oh, listen, this is this is kind of like this is a I I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but like compared to people that really love the Rocky Horror Picture Show, like I'm a fake fan. So <laughs> don't worry, I'm just gonna get progressively more and more passionate as we go along. All right, well we got uh, we got Jordan's list down to seventeen now. So Jordan, <laughs> what are you gonna slot in at number five? This is a big decision for you. No, this is this is tough. So I would like to say that also my five through two or five through three will be unranked. Uh, I feel like my top my top two or at least my number one is ranked. Okay. Anyways, I'm procrastinating, deciding. I got it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start out similar to Brooke. I kind of like approach this from like a if I'm gonna be in a public setting, what do I want to have as my top five versus like what do you want on the record you know exactly like i don't want people to know like a certain character might have made a list or whatever but so i'm gonna start out i just rewatched it this week because i had like an inkling and i wanted to know but i rewatched tangerine and so i'm gonna give it a maya taylor and she plays alexandra and tangerine who's the supporting character i would say like best friend to the lead in that movie This next one is one of my favorites. I hope it's one of yours. But for me, I feel like I think this movie is sort of that what Brooke had touched upon a little earlier. It's kind of like a capital I important movie for the time. And also the character, obviously, Maya Taylor, like being a trans woman, playing a trans woman was kind of monumental for the time. And I think Mm -hmm. that this movie, what I love so much about it is that it's not about I mean, like, yes, it's about these two trans women and, like, their experience, but it's so much more about, like, a comedy and this journey that they have to go on throughout the L.A. sex worker scene. Um, And I think that the way that Sean Baker, I mean, like, obviously, he kind of does it in all of his movies, but, like, where you start out with this humor and there's this, like, joyous sort of freedom and flamboyancy, and then by the end, you're kind of sitting there 
in tears and you're sobbing and you're a mess. Um, and so much of that kind of rides on the shoulders of her character and her friendship with Cindy. Um, and at the end, like Alexandra, like takes Cindy after like, being basically the one who caused so much of this journey and like gives her her wig to wear while they like sit there and wait at the laundromat while they, she's cleaning her clothes after having piss thrown on her. And it's like the most emotionally touching thing. And I think what this movie does in just in terms of like portraying just these two characters and like the deep human, I don't know, there's just like such a well of emotion there that we just didn't really see. Um, and I think this movie also like was major, especially like for this sort of like new wave of sort of queer characters on screen, especially at the time, like the letterboxed era, I want to say, quote unquote. I think that's a that's a true era. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, I feel like this, especially at that time, was sort of like one of the first ones sort of kicking off that wave. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's my that's my number five. Great pick. Nice. Yeah. Great pick. OK. Uh, number four for me is the character that I think we all wish we met on our first day of school. This is <laughs> Damien from Mean Girls from 2004. Oh nice. my God. Nice. <laughs> I love this. He's so welcoming. And he's that character. Mm-hmm. He knows a little bit about everybody. He and, and Janice have the very famous scene in Mean Girls where they give Katie, who's played by Lindsay Lohan, the kind of like rundown of everybody in the school, including the plastics, of course. Where are the plastics? They're teen royalty. If North Shore was Us Weekly, they would always be on the cover. That one there, that's Karen Smith. She is one of the dumbest girls you will ever meet. Damien sat next to her in English last year. She asked me how to spell orange. <laughs> that little one? That's Gretchen Wieners. She's totally rich because her dad invented toaster strudel. Gretchen Wieners knows everybody's business. She knows everything about everyone. That's why her hair is so big. It's full of secrets. Hey, hey, um, what's happening? And evil takes a human form in Regina George. I'll be fooled, because she may seem like your typical selfish, backstabbing, slut-faced hoe bag, but in reality, she is so much more than that. She's the queen bee, the star. Those other two are just her little workers. He's like the prototype, I think, of what filmmakers have as like the quote unquote gay best friend now. But when this movie came out, there were very few gay best friends in movies. And I love that he makes no apologies for his sexuality. He's just there and he's having fun, chewing the screen every time he's on there. And for a film that has so many iconic lines, he arguably has like some of the best lines, possibly the best line in the film with you go Glenn Coco. Yes. And of course, like she doesn't even go here. There's so many good lines, so many good scenes, like every scene he's in, he steals that scene. And so, yeah, I, I had to have Damien from Mean Girls on my list here at number four. I love that. I love that. Um, it's great. And I think that like, specifically speaking to the trope of the gay best friend in high school, like Damien is mm-hmm. that trope done right, like done for laughs, but like, so genuine and so funny at the same time. And yeah, I mean, I could sit here all day and quote his lines. My personal favorite is I want my picture back. <laughs> I want my picture. <laughs> That's why your hair is so big. It's full of secrets. It's full of secrets. I mean, you can just go on and on. Brooke. 
number four for you. Okay, so I feel like this is uh, kind of a nice bridge with Jordan's number five pick because my pick for number four is also a movie that I saw really recently that totally, like, absolutely kind of, like, it took over my heart and really I knew it was something so, so special. Um, the character is Olivia from Lingua Franca, written, directed, starring, and edited by Isabel Sandoval. Um, if you're not familiar with Isabel Sandoval, she is um, a very cool up-and-coming Filipina filmmaker, and she's also a trans woman. And Lingua Franca was her first film that uh, was done through the U.S. Um, and it's this really kind of like unique situation. It shouldn't be as unique to see this on screen, particularly in film, as it is. But like, Lingua Franca is centered completely around Olivia, and it is a story about a trans woman played by, like, the creator. Um, like, uh, Isabel Sandoval is, is, is completely in control of this narrative, both, like, off-screen and on-screen, and Olivia's story is about her trying to make ends meet and looking for a green card and maybe seeing if she can get that via marriage and worrying about ice while she works um as like a caretaker for an elderly woman for an elderly woman it's this um it's a very like it's pitched as this very indie slice of life movie but as all good indie slice of life movies do it has an incredible amount of heart to it and i think like what really struck me about Lingua Franca and the character of Olivia is how in control of her own narrative she is, like, through the entire film. Like, it's so rare to see a trans character not really experience a ton of transphobia on screen and also, like, and also, like, be complicated and three-dimensional and just, like, treated as the way that anybody else would be treated. I, I don't know if I can like even fully put into words how delicate and special the film is about like um about like how much you care about this woman. Um it's also a very sexy, sensual, funny, sad movie. It's a little bit of everything. Um and I truly think that like Isabel Sandoval has the goods so this is kind of like a secret uh love for her and also like for her character um and i feel like the cherry on top is that like after this film was made it was acquired by ava duvernay's company array and then it was also released on netflix where it still is so like this is a incredibly unique film that has that like global reach um which i think is also like incredibly incredibly rare um, even though it wasn't like a Netflix original, it still like has that level of accessibility worldwide. Um, so yeah, that's my number four pick. I saw Brooke log this whenever, and then Brooke, Brooke is uh, not a star person on Letterboxd, but I've known Brooke since Brooke was a, a wee, a wee teen. Not a teen, <laughs> whenever, I don't know how A young adult. Love, but like, I know when you like love a movie because of like how you speak about it. And I saw your mm -hmm. Letterboxd review and I was like, I have to like watch that like tomorrow. Um, yeah. And I think like everything you said is, is so poignant. And it's, it's, I think, beautiful. You really, you really you hit the nail on the head there. 
Oh, thank you. I think um, Jordan is a big fan of 2022's After Sun, a very recent, like, beautiful, delicate indie. And I think that and Lingua Franca would make a really cool and mm. interesting double feature. So Ooh. if you liked After Sun, I think you're going to like this. It's a great call. I'll have to check this out. I have not heard of it. I'm glad that it's accessible and on Netflix. I actually pulled it up on Letterboxd just to, like, see what the cover was. And Sean Baker's got the first review on there which is, like you said, a, a yep. perfect segue. Sean Baker on Letterboxd, baby. <laughs> Our friend and, like, my probably, like, favorite critic ever, Drew Gregory, has an amazing, like, autostraddle interview about it, um, and her review is pretty high up on Letterboxd, I want to say, so I highly recommend checking that out. And Isabel Sandoval also has, like, an incredible Twitter. Um, so <laughs> I recommend following her as well. The more important, like the movie can be good, but if you have a good Twitter, who <laughs> she has a great Twitter. Okay. All right. There we go. Uh, the, so number four, we have Lingua Franca and uh, we'll go over to Jordan for your number four. Mm, oh boy. <laughs> woo, woo, woo. Okay. Um, so this one I have like as a, I, I'm going to throw it back a little bit and you know, for for all my for all my lesbians in the room um i had was really torn here and i had like carol for instance down portrait mm-hmm. of you know lady on fire um i had like you know i had a, a, a court i had some people but i was like look we need like some older movie representation and who is like that bitch who is like the most like iconic, I think, lesbian of early, you know, cinema. And I was like, well, there's only one queen in my eyes and that's Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca, uh, 1940. You wouldn't think she'd been gone so long, would you? Sometimes when I walk along the corridor, I fancy I hear her just behind me, that quick light step. I couldn't mistake it anywhere. It's not only in this room, it's in all the rooms in the house. You almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? I don't believe it. Sometimes. I wonder if she doesn't come back here to Manderley. Watch you and Mr. De Winter together. I love this. <laughs> I think that, uh, I mean, like, look, if you've, like, read Rebecca, of course, like, you know that Daphne is a, a queer queen, um, so it's not surprising. But especially with Hitchcock, too, like, throughout his career, there are so many queer characters, uh, whether that be, like, Rope or, you know, uh, Strangers on a Train, etc. But, like, or not Stranger, yeah, I don't know. Um, but Mrs. Danvers, to me, I think is the most iconic because she encapsulates something that I love about queer characters on screen, and that's when they can just be evil uh, and mean and the entire point of Mrs. Danvers in this movie is that she was so in love with the original Mrs. De Winter that she is just going to ruin Joan Fontaine's life for the entire film. And I think there's nothing more iconic than that. Like when you love someone so dearly and this other woman comes into the house and you're like, how dare you step where my former love once stepped. And what's so good about her as this queer character is like, it's never stated it's never like explicit that she's queer, which is, I think, with the history of queer characters, kind of like the biggest thing. Like throughout, you know, Hollywood, there have always been queer coded characters, but so rarely would they say that they were actually gay or whatnot. Um, but I don't know. Mrs. Danvers to me is sort of the epitome of an iconic queer evil lesbian. And I had to have some sort of representation of an evil gay on my list. 
And I feel like she really fulfills that role quite well. So Mrs. Danvers is my number four. Listen, you know I love the evil gaze. I it makes know, me very I happy. I, had to, I also wanted, didn't want to like tap on like an evil gay shoe if you had one. So I was like, okay, who's an evil gay that I love, that Brooke loves, but I don't want to like have the same evil gay. So yes, Mrs. Danvers exactly. is my evil gay. You know, there's a lot of both overt queer characters and kind of like subtext in Hitchcock's films. And this is oh, yeah, yeah. this is an amazing movie. You you guys covered this for your show, right? Yes, we did. We yeah, we did. Did. Yeah. And the 2020 remake, oh. which is quite fun. <laughs> yeah, I have no interest in seeing that. But uh, wow, this is a great pick. And one that I completely forgot about. If I had remembered, this would probably have made my top five. I'm glad you brought this up. Hey, there you go. Jordan covering all the bases. <laughs> my, uh, I think we talked about a couple Hitchcocks, the most recent one being Rope, um, mm-hmm. which is chock full of evil gays and super fun. I mean, um, that's like three um, evil gays get into a room and only two are coming out alive. <laughs> or they all mm-hmm. come out alive, but I guess four evil gays go in a room and only three come out alive. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good segue into my number three here, because this is the really only evil character on my list. Now, there are going to be spoilers for this one, but it's a film from 1983. So I'm hoping that people... I think that's fine. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, one of the best twist endings in this movie ever. The movie is Sleepaway Camp. From 1983. Oh, ho, ho, yeah. And the character is Angela slash Peter Baker. Um, I saw this movie pre-internet. So this was like one of those uh, sleepover classics. Like you're going to have a sleepover and parents take the, take the kids to Blockbuster and you just like pick up the most craziest stuff you can. And this is one of those films that kind of like inspired my love for the B movie for like the slasher Mm. film and those boxes that scared you as a kid. This is one of the films that made me love those kind of films. Uh, If you've never seen Sleepaway Camp, I highly recommend it. Long story short, it starts out like 1975. There's two characters, John and his partner, Lenny, and they've got John's kids on the boat. They're like near the summer camp. And is it where you sleep away? You, you may sleep mm-hmm. there. You may sleep there. <laughs> and they're like uh, playing in the water. And one of the camp counselors drives a speedboat through them, killing John and one of the kids. And then later on, uh, the the surviving child, Angela, she lives with her aunt. And she's like getting sent to this summer camp, which is obviously traumatic for for this person. And people at the summer camp start ending up dead. It's a slasher film. It's got some pretty inventive kills. Uh, I'm guessing you've both seen Sleepaway Camp. Actually, I never have, but I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, Yeah, it's got kind of an infamous ending. You did not spoil (laughs) it for me, I'll just say. Yeah, but I've never actually seen it. I have also not seen it. It's like, I feel like, well, I feel like, Brooke, we might be in the same boat, but it was sort of like this one where I'm like, I knew the ending before the movie, and I was like, well, I'll get to it, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. 
I think that we we um, talk to a lot of horror fans and we've amassed like a pretty impressive horror to watch list of like slightly egregious blind spots um and sleepaway camp is very high up on that list so it might be uh we might need to do a marathon uh this october you know what that being said i'm not going to reveal any of the cool kills i'll just leave that to the imagination since you know the ending but you probably don't know some of the kills we'll leave that we'll leave that off the board but the um the ending is where you find out that this character who you thought was Angela was actually not Angela after all. It was uh, Peter living as Angela. And you find out when she takes her robe off to go skinny dipping at the end of the film. It's a bizarre, like bonkers ending that I just did not see coming when I was younger. Now, watching this film now, uh, I guess even watching it in 1983, it is problematic, like many 80s films are. And you could take this as like a, a really transphobic film. And a lot of people have argued that the film is trying to make make people think that trans folks are dangerous. And there's a really great article by Harmony Colangelo that defends this Ooh, film. Oh, we love Harmony. Who doesn't? Yeah. Who doesn't? She's wonderful. You have to read that. It's called The Transgender Defense of Angela Baker and Sleepaway Camp. It's a wonderful article. I highly recommend that people go read that if you have ill feelings about how trans folks are displayed in this film. It doesn't belong in the, the Angela doesn't belong in the Buffalo Bill camp, as she says in that article. So... Um, yeah, that's that's my number three, Angela Baker from Sleepaway Camp. Love it. Um, I mean, I'm going to take like a hard left turn here for my number three. <laughs> but um, you Bring all knew this was coming. It was only a matter of time. My number three pick is Lorraine Broughton from Atomic Blonde Portrait by Charlize Theron. I mean... How am I going to make a top five queer characters list and not put her on this? I didn't think that you would show. Still on the rocks. You pay attention. I look for pleasure in the details. Yes, I would like to say that from here on, like, the top three picks are real Brooke picks. Like, just, <laughs> you're going to see a pattern. Um, but I uh, I have forever been a fan of Atomic Blonde. I saw Atomic Blonde three times in the theaters. I watched that trailer on loop when it came <laughs> out. Um, it also uh, came out the year that I came out of the closet. So I think that... <laughs> Uh, the movie just sort of like popped at a very important time for me. But I think that like one, Jordan and I always joke along with the rest of the internet that Charlize Theron almost never plays straight characters. Um, and I think like it's kind of a weirdly like tour de force performance in Atomic Blonde. I would not say that, you know, she certainly like has performances in general that I would put above it but to me Atomic Blonde is a movie that like she produced like 
is unquestionably the star of, like holds every frame and it creates a really cool three-dimensional like badass bisexual assassin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, it's a really solidly great and entertaining movie. Like this, to me, this is like popcorn entertainment done right. Um, and I know that I can always go back to like watch Lorraine Broughton um, you know, make out with Sophia Vutella and kick a bunch of dudes' faces in and, like, feel a little bit better. Like, to me, this is, like, my comfort It's your cinema. comfort movie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I and I love that. her. And I think that the movie and, like, Charlize's performance in it and just kind of, like, everything that, like, this character, um, the way that she just, like, lives in this very stylish cool sleek movie um will forever have a special place in my heart so that's my number three pick great pick can you hear the applause from germany thank you thank you thank you um and uh you know i would just like to say so the film does feature that bisexual subplot that's not in the original um book or it's based on a book or a graphic novel um and it was Charlize Theron's like partial idea because she wanted it to be different from other spy movies um so there you go (laughs) look we're not saying that Charlize Theron is like the most queer actress on screen but we're not not saying it (laughs) I Jordan and I described her as being in the Daniel Craig Rachel Weiss camp where it's like I mean we're not saying she's definitely queer but like we're not saying she's definitely not queer i don't know people's <laughs> lives are their own and people should keep their private lives private to be clear um but you know we love a little headcanon i love yeah. this movie so much this movie has one of the best fight scenes i've ever seen and one of the only real mm. fight scenes when at the end of it both characters fighting are so tired that they can barely stand up. I loved that about this movie. And she is just, she is so badass in that role. It's yeah. Great movie. It rocks. Unbelievable pick. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to, I feel like with this pick, I think I can build off of you here because this movie also features bisexual lighting, but not in a bisexual lighting purposeful (laughs) way. Uh, (laughs) So I'm going to, I feel like this is a very, not generic, but like, clean purposeful you know pick but like i'm gonna go with chiron and moonlight all three versions how do i know you just do i think you know what you know you gotta know right now all right not yet there's been so much writing about this movie and there's been so much said about why both the film and this character are so deeply important. Um, But I guess like similar to Brooklyn, this movie definitely came out when I personally, it wasn't like the movie that pushed me sort of out of the closet or was like the realization, but was sort of one of those ones that comes along and you watch it and you realize, and you like know, and it's sort of like a guiding hand kind of pushing you forward Um, And I think that why specifically is this movie deals with masculinity in such a beautiful, loving way and the way that it intertwines with queerness and how those two work together to both like uh, hold Chiron back, but ultimately let him then become like his most happy self eventually in the end. 
uh, when he is able to like finally like push himself out of these walls that he has put up to protect himself from his queerness and from all around him. And I mean, what Barry Jenkins is able to do both with the camera, with such a beautiful script, I mean, there, what else? Can, I don't know. There's, there's nothing else I can really say other than just like this character, I think, is one of the most important sort of queer characters, especially for a queer male uh, character on screen. Um, and I think that people will just continue to go back to this movie uh, for a myriad of reasons. But yeah. I'm so glad that you picked this because this was on my list for a very long time, like right up until the record. And Beautiful. I took it off because I was like, I know that Jordan is going to talk <laughs> about this. Um, and I'm so glad that you did. I think like that movie became such like a, cause it was my junior year in college seeing that. And I saw that movie, I think like similar to you, Brooke with Atomic Blonde, like multiple times in theaters. And I was like, Hmm, why do I keep going back to this movie? Why is it really resonating with me? I wonder why. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just in hindsight, uh, I know now why. So You know now. <laughs> well, I have to admit, I have not seen this film yet. It is a blind spot for me. Whoa! Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious. It's, it's been on my to-watch list for, I guess, since, yeah, since it won the Oscar. You won't regret it because, like, it's a deeply beautiful movie and in my opinion has one of like the best endings like full stop yes. of all time. Like yes. it's one of it's again one of those like rare queer movies that like actually you leave like feeling full and not mm -hmm. like horrible. Yeah. I would say the first act of that movie also is probably the most powerful 20 minutes. Like it's sort of something I can like always go back to what you, you kind of get a full story in there with like young Chiron uh, Alex Hibbert. And it kind of culminates in the most gut-punching, uh, like, line of dialogue about, like, a queer, about queerness. Um, so I very much highly recommend uh, watching. I will definitely yeah. check yeah. it out. You, you gotta do it. You gotta do yeah. it. Yeah, that's gonna go, go into the top of the list. Um, okay, number two. We have not crossed over yet at all. This is amazing. I know. We'll see when it comes to our top two here, especially for this one, because I know you've covered this one on your show. Now, uh, oh, no. your last pick there, you said, uh, Brooke, you said that it left you feeling full and not like really bad leaving the theater. Mm -hmm. This movie's going to leave you feeling bad. Okay. I mean, I do love a feel bad movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great movie, but uh, you're going to leave the you're going to leave the experience a little bit down. And I guess I'll start by saying how far would you go for your partner? Because you might say that you'd do anything for them, but most people have limits but Sal Wartzik from 1975's Dog Day Afternoon did not have Ooh. limits. He, Let's go. he went and robbed a bank Attica. for his partner. Attica. Attica. Yep, you got it. He went and robbed a bank with the hopes of earning enough money to pay for his partner Leon's gender affirmation surgery. Um, if you've never seen Dog Day Afternoon, it's a legitimately great movie. It's based on a true story. Uh, it's about these three guys, which quickly becomes two guys because one of them chickens out that go to rob a bank and they are in way over their heads. Like they show up and there's literally no money in the bank. There's like $1,100 in the bank because they just missed the pickup. Uh, and they're trapped inside and they have to try and negotiate their their way out. But I, I love the character of Sal. He's, uh, he's just so vulnerable. He's so caring. He's just in a bad spot. And 
he's played by Al Pacino in what I mean, it's it's one of his best roles. And again, a career with so many iconic roles. This is one of his best. And it's interesting that he he puts such a great performance out there because he he turned the film down like three times. They had considered Dustin mm-hmm. Hoffman for the role, and then Pacino was attached, and then he bailed out, and then he was attached again, and then bailed out. And finally, they convinced him to do it. And one of the reasons he didn't want to do it, because in 1975, he was afraid that a character like Sonny might ruin his career. I know I said Sal up to this point, but it's it's Sonny, the, the character that I'm supposed to be talking about. This guy was in Godfather and Godfather Part Two, and then he's afraid that a character like Sonny is going to ruin his career, which is to me it was it's crazy and and really sad to think about. Mm-hmm. But in the end, his performance is so powerful that the he was nominated for Best Actor for his role in this film. The film was nominated for like six or seven Oscars. I think it only won Best Screenplay, and then Pacino lost to Jack Nicholson. I mean, they're they were going up against One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, which kind of like cleaned up most of the awards he should have won understandable though. under uh, yes i i love this pacino performance i think it's, it's incredible. So yeah. one of the sweatiest performances ever in the <laughs> best way yeah yeah and i listened to your episode and i know you're both big fans of this movie so i was like well i'm it, it's definitely my number two we'll see if any if either of them have it on their list but uh yeah i had to have to have it on mine i love that i mean it wasn't on my list so i'm really glad that you brought it up I know I was on the long, long list. <laughs> so, but we're still clean so far. Still clean so far. Um, let's see. This is another real brook pick again. I just feel like the list wouldn't be complete without without this queen. Um, my number two pick is Catherine Trammell from Basic Instinct. Mm. Let's go. Let's by go. Sharon Stone. Let's go. <laughs> um, if you are not familiar with Basic Instinct, it's one of the most famous erotic thrillers of all time, directed by master of weird sex and <laughs> <laughs> making you feel bad and good at the same time, Paul Verhoeven. Um, I have not been shy about the fact that I unabashedly like love this movie and not in an ironic way. Like, I think that this movie is a stone cold masterpiece and every time that i watch it i am not only completely floored by sharon stone's performance and really think that there's like nothing like it but also am always so impressed about how much the movie lets Catherine be so authentic to who she is not only as a murderer mm-hmm. but i mean come on Like, you really think that I was going to get through five of my favorite queer characters and one of them wasn't going to be evil, like you said? Like, come on. Um, I think that she remains so in control and has so much agency over her decisions throughout the course of the film. She is never for a second not aware of what she's doing. And that is so powerful because... There is always going to be this little bit of wondering if the movie even knows how much agency they're giving her. Like, uh, it's just, it, uh, again, it, it's it's a standout for me because she gets everything that she wants in this movie and she's allowed to continue to live essentially her murderous, sapphic 
lifestyle while also keeping Michael Douglas around for as long or as little as she wants. And the movie does not punish her for it. Um, There's obviously a few outdated things to do with this movie. It is from the 80s, but I think it is the gold, the gold standard for erotic thrillers and is considered to be one of the most like or uh, one of the first mainstream portrayals of bisexuality on film. And, um, you know, the character of Catherine Chamel is like without a doubt, like fully bisexual. Uh, And I just think that that is extremely cool and i will actually never be over how incredible sharon stone is in that movie would you say yes 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 i I withheld myself from doing a quote um (laughs) which was it was it the magna cum laude pussy joke yes yes (laughs) Yes? okay there we go i mean there's that i mean you could also say perhaps he got off before he got off the, neither um, of those, uh, neither of those are said by Catherine. Though is the thing. No, no, no. Well, Catherine, Catherine, I feel like is just more insulting. You know, with like Michael yes. Douglas, where she's like, "You want to smoke?" Bada bing. Yes, that's what, that's how she talks. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I'm gonna. I would like to also say, Brooke. Though I have uh, next to my number one and two an alt section for alt one and twos and alt. Uh, for number two, Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Don't worry. I got you covered. It's a great pick. Thank you. Look, we are on the same wavelength. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is one of those films that kind of like changed the erotic thriller. And uh, mm-hmm. I love it also secondarily because it takes place in my neck of the woods, San Francisco. It's got great San Francisco scenes. Yeah. And uh, it does. Yeah. Just a, a fantastic movie. I, I'm very surprised whenever I see this movie, I'm so surprised that Sharon Stone's leading lady window was like so short because she's so good in this movie. <sighs> it's so because I mean, I could I could yell about this for hours, but um, it's because like she was. She got so much flack for this performance, not for like how well she played it, but like people are just so horrible to like mm-hmm. women in sexual mm-hmm. roles on screen. Like yeah. it it's it's so sad to see because I think that this is truly like a a once in a generation performance. Um, and 1992 was not that long ago. And to see mm-hmm. how thoroughly people were like, Ew, Sharon Stone like is sin incarnate because of this performance is um protesting the movie. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um and for what is worth there was a lot of protests about this film being bad bisexual representation, but I actually think it's you know kind of False. similar to what you were talking about with Sleepaway Camp, like it it you can definitely be like this movie shows that like bisexual women are out to kill you and they're all serial murderers, but um I think it's rare that you see like a queer female character who is so is this confident and this self-assured about who she is and never has to like give an inch. So mm-hmm. I actually think it's like kind of inspiring, but don't worry. I have not bought any ice picks nor will I be buying any. That's what you say now. Wait until mm-hmm. you meet Michael Douglas. The sexiest man ever somehow in this movie. Wears a V-neck to the gay the gay club. We will never forget. Uh, in a complete tonal uh whiplash swap from brooke i'm going with uh mikhail slash flory uh in tomboy by celine sciama um Mm. this movie came out in 2011 and is uh i think one of the most 
like important movies for me. Um, and it's basically about uh, a 10 year old, uh, basically gender nonconforming, non-binary um, person named Lori who goes to like this new neighborhood uh, during the summer and basically just starts experimenting with their gender um, and goes by the name Mikhail instead. And it's, I think, you know, with all of Celine Sciamma's movies, she has just such a tender hand in telling these really, really beautiful stories about coming of age and like discovering yourself and becoming comfortable with yourself. And what's so nice about this movie is that like, while Mikhail has to like hide who they are from, you know, those around them, there's this deep well of understanding and care for the character and despite like what may happen you always know that they're going to kind of be okay and it's almost like this like a guiding hand through the woods for them to kind of find who they want to be and like the whole movie is about just becoming comfortable in their own skin and learning to like experiment especially at that age you know when you're 10 and discovering who you are you can be so vulnerable um but the movie surrounds them with uh, her sister or their sister who is like six and like does not care at all which is so beautiful um yeah no i mean i don't know what else to say other than this movie is just so so beautiful um and really is like eye-opening and i hope more people see it i love that i think that's a that's a wonderful pick um and i'm very glad that celine skiyama is now represented on this list i know i had to i had to yeah totally i i had portrait of a lady on fire as one of my honorable mentions but i have not seen tomboy so i need to check it out on to number one number one's here the grand finale it's here oh my gosh well for tomboy you mentioned that it was about becoming comfortable in your skin my number one character here is probably the most comfortable in their skin on my list this is a person who is who who wears their sexuality on their sleeve they're so proud of it. It's literally part of his nickname. This is the private eye who goes by Gay Perry. <gasps> yes! Kiss, oh bang, bang. Fucking go. Thanks, bro. One of these days I'm actually going to learn how to fight. Harry Van Shrek. Oh, hey. Harry Lockhart. Oh, um, I heard about you. You're the, uh, whatchamacallit, the consultant. You must be, anyway. Gay Perry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Dabney calls you that. I mean, I guess you guys are old buddies. Or... It's five years now. Wow, five years. Still gay? Me? No. I'm knee-deep pussy. I just like the name so much, I can't get rid of it. Oh my god! I mean, you know your audience very well. I wow. love this. This is like one of my top five movies of all time, and Gay Perry is such a memorable character. If you've never seen Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, it's a mystery that puts this struggling actress, a petty criminal, and this private eye together as they try to solve a series of murders. But here is Gay Perry stealing the show, played by Val Kilmer. He's, he's the rare gay character who uses his open sexuality to his advantage. And there's a couple scenes yes. that like are so memorable and stand just stand out to me one where he keeps a small gun in the crotch of his pants because he he thinks that straight men won't search him there and that turns out to be true throughout the film he also uses his sexuality to make some very bad guys uncomfortable while his counterpart harry played by robert downey jr is getting his genitals shocked with live wires he's always the toughest smartest guy in the room 
He's always got the right lines. And he's so comfortable that like he walks in and his phone, his ringtone, I will survive, like just owns it. I love Gay Perry in (laughs) Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. When you brought this topic to me, it's like, you know what? That's that's my number one right off the bat. Now I just have to get the other four. But Gay Perry was always number one. Wow. I am so happy right now. <laughs> Me too. I also feel like this is like kind of beautiful how fate works out because I don't know, Jordan, unless you've got something up your sleeve, like Gay Perry is not my number one pick. And he but is like not mine either, but he was there. <laughs> like he yes, he was one of the ones who I like sadly ended up cutting in my process. And I am so glad that he's represented because I think it's one an, an amazing Val Kilmer performance. We are both huge, huge Kiss Kiss Bang Bang fans, yeah. and I mean it's it's kind of crazy when you rewatch it and you're like, damn, he really like did that, yeah. <laughs> like, and he lives and he yes. gets all the best yes. moments. Yeah, it should be problematic. And knowing Shane Black, Shane Black has. Uh, maybe not often been, uh, I would say, progressive. Uh, and so it can be very dangerous waters, but then the movie just absolutely fucking delivers with the character. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. Just so many, it, like, all. Yes. you're right, all the great lines go to Val Kilmer in, the, in that movie. It's so, he's such a great character. Oh, this seriously makes me so happy right now. Wow. Um, let's, let's hear it for Gay Perry, one of the, the best privatized to ever do you it. You know it. Um... Okay, well, uh, here's the end of my list. Um, I actually dropped a little Easter egg at the beginning of this episode. I didn't really mean to, but then I realized that I did it, so we can pretend it's intentional. Um, My number one favorite queer character of all time is Elizabeth Salander. Oh, fuck. God fucking shit. girl with the dragon (laughs) tattoo. Is that your number one, Jordan? Are you serious? That's that's the one that I've had lost from the beginning. (laughs) We've crossed over. God damn it, bro. <laughs> well, we can have the same person. That's fine. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we can talk about her in tandem because, like, she, like, she is not an easy character. She is very prickly and and very kind of like difficult and dangerous um and comes from like a lot of trauma which are usually elements that don't necessarily make a super nuanced and interesting queer character but like i think that i'm i specifically and jordan i know you'll agree with me um would pick rooney mara's portrayal of her and david fincher's uh version of the girl with the the dragon tattoo yeah obviously the technically the character of elizabeth has been portrayed a couple different times but like she is like those books were like a global phenomenon um and it's kind of crazy that they had like a punk chain smoking bisexual computer hacker um who gender fluid or more androgynous i would say yeah 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 like that that was like she was the hero of those books and like was able to cross over into like these incredible this incredible film portrayal by Rooney Mara um she's just like she's so fucking cool at the end of the day that's what it comes down to Jordan I'll let you take over from here I mean I think you nailed it like she is really just one of the most iconic characters and I think re-watching it when we did uh over Christmas it kind of just solidified it for me 
And I just forgot how just confident and in control of the situation she is after. Obviously there are parts in the movie where like she's taken advantage of, but you know, going forward, she is just a, a powerful force to be reckoned with. And I think to have such a, a tough, just kind of doesn't give a fuck queer character is so empowering. And there's just something about her that I think is like inspiring. It's sort of like what you were talking about before Brooke yeah. with like, honestly, Sharon Stone and basic instinct that kind of, she has a little bit uh, in that movie where she just carries herself in a way that like, I would love to be able to carry myself as like a queer character and to feel comfortable is again, like with her androgyny, with her sexuality she like doesn't care who she's hooking up with, but there's also a tenderness to the scene where she brings the girl home from the bar and they're just kind of hanging yeah. out. Like it's not a thing. And I think the way that Fincher shoots it and how casual the whole movie is with her queerness is really what makes it stand out. Um, I mean, shoot again, my number one by queen for a reason. So. Wow. Yeah. Sam. Um, I, wow. We finally, <laughs> we finally we synced did up. But wow. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. We it love does. her. And like I said, like it is she's a difficult character and like it's, you know, it's it, it is like you kind of have to take like the good with the the good and the bad with her. Um it's not all like sunshine and rainbows or whatever. Like there's obviously some really heavy stuff in those books, but yeah, I think we uh end in the movie, but I think that we both agree that like her sort of like penchant for vengeance and like mm-hmm. fairness when it comes to like trauma begetting trauma like an eye for an eye is yes. really just cool and an, an, a really interesting kind of like addition to her character um and yeah. i think that like it's it's uh it's interesting to see a queer character where you really do feel like their queerness is um affected by the world around them and vice versa like a huge part of Elizabeth's, I think, like bisexuality is kind of like her, her, how she, how the, the job that she does tells her about men. Like, all you have to do is look at the Fincher film. That is a film about essentially being like the insidious nature. (laughs) Men are fucking miserable. (laughs) Oh, kind of like not being able to trust men that you don't know. Um, and I think it's just like a really nice kind of like, um, parallel uh that also like again gives us a really cool iconic queer character at the end of the day i'm so surprised that it took us so long to have a crossover but it's so fitting that it's at number one and i love the fact that you've matched up when you said feel bad i got so nervous i was like oh my god are you gonna say the feel bad movie of christmas i was like fuck we're (laughs) spoiling it so early Amazing lists, amazing characters. Let's run back through them real quick so people can be reminded. I'll go through mine first. So at number five, I had Amy from Booksmart. At number four, I had Damien from Mean Girls. At number three, I had Angela slash Peter Baker from Sleepaway Camp. At number two, I had Sonny from Dog Day Afternoon. And at number one, I had Gay Perry from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Brooke, uh, run us through your five. 
Uh, here's my five. At number five, I had Dr. Frank N. Furter from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. At number four, I had Olivia from Lingua Franca. At number three, I had Lorraine Broughton from Atomic Blonde. At number two, I had Catherine Trammell from Basic Instinct. And at number one, I had Elizabeth Salander from The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So good. Beautiful. Uh, my number five, I had Alexandra from Tangerine. At number four, I had Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca, specifically 1940. Uh, at number three, I had, oh my God, I'm looking at my list. I'm like, where am I? Uh, Chiron <laughs> from Moonlight. Number four, I had uh, Mikkel from Tomboy. And of course, at number one, our queen, the, the titular girl with the dragon tattoo. Boom. Now, I know we had a couple of honorable mentions. Jordan, you had a thousand. Oh uh, I'll just real quick. <laughs> so many here. I'll touch on a couple that that we didn't bring up. Uh, Andy Samberg's character in I Love You, Man. He plays uh, Paul Rudd's uh-huh. brother. He's amazing. And he's just like super supportive of his brother. And he's like best friends with his dad. Just a great character. I had uh, Wallace from Scott Pilgrim. On my honorable mentions here, mm. he's uh, Scott's best friend. And then I had Good pick. Um, Alyssa from Chasing Amy, who uh, I I really Whoa. love that character, but uh, just did not have room for Alyssa Jones on my list. So those are three that were not mentioned by anybody else. Uh, Brooke, you had some honorable mentions, I'm sure. Oh, I did. Well, I just want to say there's no portrait of a lady on fire. There's no bound. There's no Brokeback Mountain. There's no handmaiden. There's no my own private Idaho. And I'm just saying, I'm just saying, those are mostly not on. Okay, those are mostly not on my list because I couldn't pick between the couples. Mm. I can't do it. It's too hard. Um, I can't pick a fave. So. My two honorable, well, okay, my three honorable mentions that I'm going to call out are Nina Sayers from Black Swan. I mean, come on. It's my favorite movie of all time. I had to at least consider her, but I figured I'd talk enough about that movie and I could put my talents elsewhere for this particular exercise. Um, Joe March from Little Women, who I think is like incredible lesbian representation, but I ended up leaving her off because it's not actually explicit um but like to me she's one of my favorite characters yeah she's one of my favorite characters of all time and like in my mind like she i think that she either is definitely a lesbian or asexual or on like the asexual spectrum um so but anyway at the end of the day uh, once again, I figure I talk about her enough. Um, and probably my top honorable mention that I was like so sad that I had to get rid of, but I could really only have one evil gay on this list is Tom Ripley from The Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Uh, as portrayed one. by Matt Damon, he he was like my number six and I was like, I'm sorry, dude. I like have to let you go. <laughs> um, but I'm obsessed with that movie. I'm obsessed with that performance. I think that like... I'm a huge fan of the I'm going to kill you and take your place because I'm in love with you and I don't know how to deal with my feelings subgenre of cinema. Um, so that that's my heartbreaker. But that's the end of my list. Jordan, uh, like I said, we'll just turn the mics off and, you know, Cracks, you go knuckles. for it. No, we had, a, <laughs> we had a lot of similar ones. I can rattle. I can go real quick. I had Glenn or Glenda in Seat of Chucky. I had Divine Very good. in Flamingos. Jennifer from Jennifer's Body. 
Uh, I'm not going to do ones that we both had. I would like to also shout out, I had, again, with the couples was really hard because I had Nathan Lane and Robin Williams in the birdcage. Mm. But I was like, mm-hmm. I can't pick one or the other. Um, and then my final big four or three, I'll, whatever, I'll just say what they are. I had Tenoch, Anitu Mama Tambien, Hedwig mm-hmm. and the Angry Inch. I had Joel Gray, the Master of Ceremonies in Cabaret. And then the most Jordan pick of Jordan picks to Jordan pick, I have um, Christopher Plummer in Beginners. Um, yeah. Because it is the most tender, beautiful thing in the world. And he is just a happy old gay. And it's so sweet. <laughs> Those are all so good. And that makes me be like, yeah, like, wait, Jennifer Check. Wait, you two, Rama Tamiyan. Wait, beginners. Right? Like, you never see, like, gay people of a certain age. Like, right? um, good, good stuff. I mean, look, we could have always, like, also, I was like, do I put Harley Quinn on there? But I'm like, technically, like, she's not out Again, yet. Again, we're, know? like, looking at sub text like at least Neo in film because like what do you do about yeah. them sure yeah yeah listen we have a whole podcast about this for a reason so spiraling um, we will continue to spiral on you know our own feed well speaking of <laughs> awesome segues let's get those final plugs in there yes you have a podcast the queer quadrant there will be links in the show notes for that podcast. But what can people look forward to? I know you're on like a little break right now after the awards show at the end of the year. What can people look forward to on the feed? Um, so let's see. This is a nice exclusive, exclusive plug for what we have coming up. I'll give you... Um, uh, with, so we are kicking off the year with Professor Marsha and the Wonder Women, which depending on when this episode Ooh. comes out, might already be on the main feed, but we're super excited about that movie. It's some one that we've wanted to cover for a while. Um, and we've got some heavy hitters the first half of the year. Everything from Magic Mike's Last Dance, which we will absolutely be covering and completing oh, yeah. the trilogy for chatting Channing. Uh, we finally dug into the Pixar film Luca, which you'll be hearing in a Mama couple months. Mia. Mama <laughs> Mia. Um, and we have, I'll just say, one of the most famous films of all time that say, is allegedly really straight, but we might be able to prove you otherwise. Uh, that's right. We're talking James Cameron's Titanic. Don't ask me Woo! what we discover in that episode because as of this recording, it hasn't been done yet. But believe you me, it is happening and we are gonna discover some secrets in the heart of the ocean. I can't wait for that discussion. Go check out the Queer Quadrant podcast wherever you're listening to this. You can listen to that show as well. Thank you, Brooke and Jordan, for coming on. Solid list. And I cannot, I still can't believe that we only crossed over on one choice. Hey, right back at you. This was incredible. Thank you so much for having us. And um, you really brought it with the picks. Like, completely crushed it. That might be the best pick of, uh, like, your number one pick might make you, uh, like, go on the wall of the Queer Quadrant Hall of Fame. Like, you really, you really did it right there. As usual, links to everything Force 5 and Queer Quadrant are in the show notes. Links, social media, all that. I'm going to make it real easy for you to support. Please go follow these folks. Add them to your podcast feed. You will not be disappointed. Speaking of support, executive producers on this episode include Peter Beta from the Middle Class Film Class, Musa Mahmood, Rupert Bumblestein, Bumblestein, 
uh, however you say it, Ryan Goland of the New World Pictures Podcast and Carlos Mota. Thank you very much for your support. If you want to be a producer on this show, head to patreon.com backslash force five. If you can't spare five bucks a month, that's okay. I know Christmas just happened. A lot of us are still recovering. Money's tight, whatever it is. Hey, I get it. Take two minutes and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. That's all you got to do. Tell your friends to listen to. Talk top five lists with them. Make it a topic of conversation around the water cooler. I don't know. Do those two things, though. They, they really help me out. They really help the show audience grow. Theme songs today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go fall in love with some amazing LGBTQ characters. Thank you.